Hello, good afternoon. I want to welcome you to today's program. This is uh, convened by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. I'm Larry Jacobs, I'm a professor at the University of Minnesota in the Department of Politics and primarily in the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Um, I want to start by thanking you for joining us and also inviting you to participate in today's discussion. You'll see at the bottom of your screen, there's a Q&A button, which we've helpfully circled there for you. Please send us your questions. We're going to get to as many as we possibly can. It's a very important part of uh, the conversation today. Um, I'm very excited about today's discussion. It's, it's really on one of, I think, one of the critical issues that we face as a country uh, as we head into the fall and then after the November election, which is the, uh, the history and the current status of American conservatism. Um, American conservative thought has been a ruling philosophy, a kind of organizing principle for more than six decades in America. Uh, and Donald Trump's personality and policies have raised a host of questions, including has President Trump achieved remarkable conservative policy outcomes or has he uh, ruptured the traditional American conservative agenda um, and, and style of politics? Um, so we're going to be getting into those questions today and obviously lots of relevance for the 2020 election that's coming up in November, and then for the debate that may be unfolding after the election. I'm very uh, pleased to have with us a terrific uh, set of guests, uh, Professor David Hopkins from Boston College. He's an associate professor there, um, and he's written two very well-received books. Uh, one is called Red Fighting Blue, which looks at the rise of culture wars in America and their impact and the polarization of our two political parties. So very relevant for today. Um, uh, this book was singled out by Choice Magazine as a highly recommended book. Um, Professor Hopkins has also published Asymmetric Politics with Matt Grossman, uh, which looks at the impact of ideology on the Republican Party. Uh, and it also won uh, award from the American Political Science Association. So thank you very much, uh, David Hopkins, for joining us. Um, we're also joined by uh, Peter Weiner, uh, who's a vice president, senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Um, uh, Mr. Weiner has been a, um, a guest of ours at the Humphrey School a number of times. He's met with our students in Washington, D.C., and so we're grateful uh, for uh, his contribution today. He's also been a writer, and you may have seen him published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and elsewhere. Um, and I want to start with you, uh, Mr. Weiner. Um, you started your kind of life in politics uh, in the Reagan administration, and then you served in the administration of George H.W. Bush and then George W. Bush. So you're a bona fide Republican. Right. Um, and I think one of the questions that we want to kind of delve into is 
Um, isn't this a golden age from the policy perspective for the conservative agenda? Again, before the coronavirus blew it up, but you know, you kind of look at tax cuts, cuts in regulation, a host of Supreme Court and other judge appointments. This would seem to be kind of a golden age for conservatives. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Larry. Thanks, thanks for uh, hosting us and also to be here with, uh, with David as, um, as well. Um, yeah, in terms of your question, I, I think I would refine it a little bit. I don't think this is the golden age for conservative uh, policy. Um, I think that if you look back at the uh, Reagan and George W. Bush administrations, there was a lot more achieved uh, if you took the full range of conservative policies. I'm certainly, uh, as a critic of Donald Trump and a conservative, I would certainly grant him some achievements on conservative policy grounds, which you mentioned, the, the most obvious ones, judicial appointments. Supreme Court's a little more complicated. Um, Judge Gorsuch wrote an opinion on um, uh, having to do with gay rights, which which upset a lot of people on on the uh, on the right. So the so-called but Gorsuch movement uh, wasn't quite as strong as they thought. But certainly below the Supreme Court, the judicial appointments I think have been have been strong. Federalist Society, which is the main uh, institution for judges, have 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 been very helpful there. And he did cut taxes. Um, I think it was a, you know a mediocre but maybe marginally helpful bill and regulatory relief. On the flip side. I would say that he's actually upended uh, conservatism, at least conservatism as I've understood it. He's a protectionist um, and conservatives have traditionally been, been uh, free, free trade. Uh, conservatives have at least theoretically cared about deficits and debt and pre-COVID-19, um, the deficit and debt exploded under Trump. Entitlement reform, which has been central. Paul Ryan was instrumental in that uh, to try and get the Republican party in favor of entitlement reform. Trump was against that. He's done very little on education reform. Um, and uh, then when you get into international affairs, America has traditionally been a leader of, in international affairs, making morality a centerpiece of foreign policy. Trump has undone that. So I think it's a mixed bag. Well, the other thing I would say is that as a conservative, I do think policy matters. I spent most of my life in public policy, but that's not by any means how uh, I fully define conservatism. I think conservatism has to do with political philosophy and, and a certain kind of disposition, um, which we can, we can get into. But some of that has to do with epistemological humility, respect for human experience, aversion to fanaticism, uh, a belief in the complexity of human society, belief in objective truth, um, and a whole range of things. And, and I think that what Donald Trump has done is has assaulted a lot of the areas of conservative, let's say political philosophy and disposition done great damage to the Republican Party, done great damage to the conservative movement. And the final thing I'll say is I don't even consider him really a conservative. I consider him a populist, an ethnic nationalist. It's the kind of thing that we're seeing in, uh, in Europe in a lot of, of cases. So I think he's actually broken with conservatism, redefined it in a negative way. Uh, Professor Hopkins, uh, as you look at kind of Peter Weiner's trajectory from being a child of the Reagan revolution, uh, being brought in with and, and feeling some excitement about the opportunities to uh, where he is today, which is a critic of Donald Trump. Is that an exception or does that fit with your kind of tracking of what's been going on in the conservative or the right? Yeah, I, I think, um, 
It's, uh, it's, it's not unique for sure. Um, if you look uh, at obviously the, the broad Republican Party and conservatives in the mass public, most of them obviously are supporters of Trump and uh, continue to approve of his uh, performance in office and intend to vote for him in November. But if you look at the people who didn't, um, you know, who didn't go along with Trump, the people who were members of the conservative movement and Republican Party, often with professional credentials in, in one or both, who have sort of uh, gotten off the bandwagon with Trump. It's disproportionately people, I think, who are um, in the sort of the intellectual conservative category, um, people whose understanding of conservatism and their own um, adherence to conservatism is, is sort of predicated on a certain set of, of philosophical uh, commitments that they don't see Trump uh, as sharing. And we see that not only with, um, with conservative writers, people like George Will, Bill Kristol are obviously in this, um, in this, in this sort of category. Um, there are a bunch of Republican um, operatives, you know, the Steve Schmidt and Stuart Stevens and, uh, and John Weaver and people like that who are, who are in that uh, category. And, um, and sort of well-educated conservative intellectuals. Um, I have some colleagues at Boston College who are you know, conservative uh, intellectuals who are, are not Trump supporters. Um, and so those are, that's sort of where we see the, the sort of resistance to Trump is, is concentrated mostly, I think. So I wanna just bring people in this conversation because it might initially appear confusing. We've got really two different categories of identities here. We've got today, folks who identify with the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. And for them, it's like team spirit. You're, you're on one team or the other. And so you've got people who are rock solid uh, Republican team members. And for them, their team winning is what it's about. Then on the other side, or the other category would be philosophy and the two reigning ideologies in America, liberalism, and conservatism. And what we're talking about is the tension between those two categories. And Peter Winter, I want to come back to you because my sense of what you've said is that you viewed the Republican Party as a kind of a vehicle for conservative thought. You're not in it as an unthinking Republican booster. You're in it because you believe in core uh, conservative values and, and morality. Is that right? Yeah, no, that's a good that's a good way to describe it, Larry. I, I um, you know, different different people have different predilections. Um, I was not first and foremost a party guy. I was a person who who got into politics because I cared about the ideas, and I was shaped by conservatism. And I should say that you know, conservatism is a, a mansion with many rooms, and the rooms that I've sort of inhabited are probably philosophically, I would say, is Edmund Burke, and politically, Ronald Reagan as a political actor. Um, but there, you know, there, there are a lot of voices and figures in conservatism over over the, the decades and even even the centuries. But yeah, I, I would say that I've always viewed the Republican Party um, as an instrument to advance certain ideals, or certain causes. Um, and it was not the party per se that that I felt uh, great loyalty to. I had some loyalty to the Republican Party. I served three Republican administrations. I voted Republican my entire life up until 2016. Um, and, uh, you know, my, uh, a lot of friends, obviously, a lot of former colleagues, all my former colleagues are Republicans. So I felt some affinity, some uh, loyalty to the Republican Party. But when it 
broke what I think with its best traditions and it embraced not, not only nominated Donald Trump, but really embraced him and defended him. And, and even beyond that, almost never spoke up when he transgressed certain ethical or moral lines. I, my argument has always been, I understand people who say in a binary choice, they decided to vote for Trump over Hillary Clinton because they felt like he would advance causes that they care most about, they think would help the country. I, I understand that. My main complaint, my main criticism is that when Trump has done things that are really indefensible, they've either defended it or they've gone sort of voce, they've gone quiet. They wouldn't stand up to him. And that I think is where, where the disgrace and the discrediting has, has, uh, has gone on. My hope is that the Republican party uh, becomes a more conservative party um, post-Trump, um, but I'm not sure that it will. And that depends on a lot of, uh, a lot of factors starting with uh, the, the November election. Uh, Professor Hopkins, uh, let's put aside the uh, conservative intellectuals. When we look at American politics more generally, isn't it the case that, that ideology has sorted the parties so that we've got primarily a more conservative uh, Republican party? Haven't the two kind of fused in contemporary politics? Yeah, well, certainly um, we've we've over time seen a, a divergence, an ideological divergence between the parties. And you know, there was a time when there were plenty of conservative Democrats, especially Southern Democrats, and and you don't have as many of those uh, anymore. You even used to have Republicans who called themselves liberals. You don't have many of those anymore. Um, that's that's absolutely true. Um, I do think there still is an interesting difference between the parties, and obviously I'm. You know, <laughs> intellectually, I've I've already staked my ground on this argument, but I, I do think that that um, you know the the Republicans have been more uniformly conservative than the Democrats have been uniformly liberal. Um, uh, a lot of Democrats still do not identify as liberals, and the Democratic Party structurally has never been sort of the the vehicle of a single ideological movement the way that the Republican Party uh, has been. Um, having said that, obviously, in, in some respects, the Democratic Party is more to the left than it, it was, say, 20, uh, 20 years ago. Um, but I, I do think that this sort of discussion about conservatism um, and, and the discussion about who is and who isn't a conservative and who is and who isn't, you know, sort of a, a, a rhino or a true Republican or whatever, it doesn't, it, it, that sort of is, is a phenomenon that, that tends to happen a lot more on the right um, than it does in the Democratic Party. Democrats have their own fights, but they, they tend to be less uh, abstract and they more, more likely tend to be sort of fights over group, group identity and group, uh, group interest. Uh, Peter Weiner, you mentioned uh, at the outset that for you, policy is important. It's been part of your, your life's work, but that morality is at the fore. You said in one of your uh, articles, I think it was in the New York Times, you said politics um, is at its core moral. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, politics is about a lot of things, um, for, for, for sure. That's not all it's about. But I think politics, finally and fundamentally, is about justice. Um, and it's a means, an imperfect means, to advance justice or, or, or to, to roll back um, justice. And politics has profound human uh, ramifications. Um, 
Now, look, having you know been in, in government, I understand that a lot of what happens in politics and governing is fairly mundane stuff. These are not great, great moments and great issues of, of moral urgency, um, but it does matter. And political systems matter. And if you get politics wrong, there can be a tremendous uh, human cost uh, to, to it. Uh, you've seen that if, if, if you go back to you know something like North and South Korea, it, it matters what, what, what those things um, are, are, um, are about. So I, I do think that politics is importantly um, about, about morality. And I would say that kind of morality broadly understood or ethics broadly understood um, is where Donald Trump, uh, it's one of the areas where I think he has been um, such a great offense and really in a category all, uh, all of his, his own. And that, that's probably why I've spent the energy um, that, that I have against him. I, I would say just because I am anti-Trump, if I, if I were to sort of give a hierarchy of reasons and concerns for it, I, there are a lot of them. Um, but one is I, I just think that he is he, he has a disordered personality. I don't think he is mentally and psychologically and emotionally well. And I think having served in the White House for seven years, to have a person that psychologically unwell with the power of the presidency is just a roll of the dice that I'm not willing to take. And I just think he's extremely unequipped, ill-equipped to be president. I think this terrible year is demonstrating that. And the other thing I had alluded to earlier is not just that Donald Trump is a liar, he's a pathological liar, a chronic liar, and he's engaged in a full-scale all-out assault on truth and categories of truth and falsity. And that matters to me. I, when I grew up in the 1980s as part of the sort of child of the Reagan revolution, one of the really key books of that era was The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom. And that was a critique against relativism. Then at that point, the critique was against relativism on the academy and university campuses. And conservatives were with Bloom and they talked about the importance of objective truth and reality that not that you could, you know, he, was a push against what Nietzsche called perspectivism, the idea that you could come up with your own script. That's what's happening under Trump. And it's not just Trump who's doing it. It's the party underneath him um, that, that is doing that. That's part of these con wild conspiracy theories that you see. Both sides have it, but it's particularly pronounced on the, uh, on the right. So if you combine that with this crudity and, and cruelty and all of the rest, it's, uh, I, I think it's, it's really troubling. So I want to just dig in a little bit more on the morality and then we're going to dig in on some of these other issues you've raised. When uh, Barack Obama was in office for two terms, you were, you were a sharp critic. I think that's fair to say. At the same time, I think it's also fair to say that among nonpartisan political observers, the view was that Barack Obama had a fairly ethical presidency, that he was uh, quite moral, that, you know, I think, some of the general terms you use, like the pursuit of justice, uh, try, you know, his commitment to having a, a reason uh, policy discussion within the administration. So from that perspective, without getting into the policy disputes that are obviously there, do you consider Barack Obama to be a moral president? Oh yeah, by the, by the uh, definition that you gave, yeah, I consider him to be a moral man. And I think his presidency, I don't know if I'd say a moral presidency. I'd say it was an ethically, you know, impressive presidency. There were no real large scandals to speak of um, that that uh, that happened. He himself, there's no evidence at all that he was ever involved in anything that was ethically troubling. Um, as a human being, as a person, he seems to be admirable. Um, not perfect by any means. I, I gather he's 
you know, he has a pretty high opinion of himself. Most people in politics do. Um, but he, he's, you know, if, if you go from everything from as a, as a husband and a father to, uh, to a friend, to a person of how he conducts himself and conducted himself and continues to conduct himself in public life, um, I think uh, he's in many ways admirable. I don't, I don't have any criticisms uh, against him on those grounds. And I have some, some, some amount of praise for him on those grounds. I want to just uh, get a little more clarity about what you mean by morality. Uh, you wrote a book with Arthur Brooks that was well-received, well-read, uh, called Wealth and Justice. And in it, you talk about free markets and capitalism as a kind of civilizing uh, agent. Um, and you list a series of traits that, that uh, markets and capitalism produce, um, including thrift, saving, investment, um, and that these were, were good values. Is that kind of the core of your notion of what morality is, or would you expand it to also include um, Christian thought um, and perhaps other areas of kind of moral um, definition? Yeah, I, I, I think it's probably broader. I mean, those are, I think those are some of the qualities that, that Arthur and I articulated that, that capitalism can produce and which are important for a for free nation and even for individuals to 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 uh, to have but i you know under the banner of morality i would put there the, the, a whole series of 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 qualities compassion um honesty responsibility um and uh and and honor and and courage um so there, there are a whole range of what we would traditionally call either values or i think probably a better word is is uh, is virtues, but the way I think about morality in the context of of policy is what what advances the common good, um, the ethical good, uh, the most the the policies and, and and approaches that lead to respect for human dignity and human flourishing. Um, I think that's really what what politics at its best is about. Again, um, I'm I'm not naive here. I've I've, I've uh, this is in my first 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 rodeo, as they say. So I know that there are parts of politics that are uh, there. There's a dark underbelly to it. There are a lot of problems with it, like there are in any other profession. But I do think what separates politics from a lot of other professions is that there is at least properly understood some dedication of what it means to advance the common good or the moral good. Professor Hopkins. Uh, do those values and morality exist among progressives and liberals? <laughs> um, well, gosh, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that we've seen uh, during the Trump years, um, I think, has been that, um, you know, it's, it's funny, parties and, and ideologies are often kind of formed in part by, by who they're opposing at any given time. And, and one of the things that, that, that strikes me um, during the Trump years is how much, um, you know, the liberal opposition to Trump has, uh, has sort of taken the moral high ground very, you know, very explicitly, very rhetorically. I'm sort of saying, you know, what, what he's, he's a morally, you know, bad person or he's an immoral person or he, he he doesn't have these values that that are supposed to be universal values and so therefore um you know therefore we we catch and and so you know talking about 
going back to the 80s and the closing of the American mind and sort of the, the old style liberalism of who are we to judge anybody, moral relativism, you know, we don't see that so much anymore, right? We see a, a much more morally, um, you know, more sort of explicitly morally based kind of objection to Trump on, on the left than I think we saw to, to previous uh, Republican presidents. Can I just add real quick, Larry, Larry on, on, on that, Peter Winter. Um, the, um, Jonathan Hyde, who's, who teaches at, at, at New York University and wrote several really good books, including The Righteous Mind, he, he did something in The Righteous Mind that I thought was very helpful, which is he articulated a difference or a hierarchy of values between people who were progressive and conservative. So, uh, you know, say order and dissent. Um, there's a tropism that people have when they're progressive or they're, or they're conservative. That is, they're drawn to certain kinds of, of, of um, moral virtues or, or, or qualities. Um, and that is what often explains the differences, the collision between progressives and conservatives. It doesn't mean that one is more moral than the other necessarily. It means that you pl place different weight and emphasis. And the, the truth is that there can be virtue in both of them. And a political system and a country works best when there's a kind of healthy synergy where, where it's not all of one or all of the other. Somehow they work together, you, you help each other to refine each other's views and take them into account. But part of the problem I would say in, in, in political discourse today is this idea that you don't have opponents, you have enemies, and that if you hold a view different than I do, it makes you wicked uh, or, or, or malicious or malevolent, where often what is at stake is simply a different appreciation for values and how one tries to 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 balance those things. Peter Winter, you uh, published an article in the New York Times. Uh, it was after Donald Trump had basically sewn up the nomination. It was July of 2016. I'm going to read you a section of it, um, mm -hmm. get your reaction. This is you. <laughs> I'm reading you to you. Okay. <laughs> Uh, it is fair to say that there existed in the Republican Party repulsive elements, people who were attracted to racial and ethnic politics and moved by resentment and intolerance. At important moments, the Republican Party either overlooked them or played to them. Some may have been hoping to appeal to these elements while also containing and moderating them to to sand off the rough edges, to keep them within the coalition, but not allow them to become dominant. But the opposite happened. The party guests took over the party. Right. Now, the question I've got for you is, you worked for Ronald Reagan, and um, during the 1980 uh, campaign, he took a trip uh, down to Mississippi. Um, and this trip was to Neshoba, um, and it was here that Ronald Reagan talked about his commitment to states' rights. Uh, it was in the same county where the Mississippi Freedom Riders uh, were killed. Um, and so I think the question in the, in the minds of some people is going to be, okay, Donald Trump, is he a new creation? Or is he a kind of culmination of a pattern of um, these kind of uh, uh, finesses that the Republican Party has been conducting for decades. 
Yeah, no, that's it's a good question. It's a, it's a fair question. Let me disaggregate it a little bit on, on, on Reagan and the trip to, to, to Mississippi. Look, I, I, that's fair to make that, that criticism. I have no idea whether Reagan himself knew that or whether his aides decided to, 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 to send him there. Um, I was too young at the time, uh, so I don't know the backstory of, of that. It probably was not a coincidence. And, you know, if you went back to Lee Atwater, he did an interview uh, with, uh, I think it was Mother Jones magazine, maybe it was, they published it. <clears throat> anyway, it was a, it was a interview that, that Atwater did in 1981. It was talking about the Southern strategy that Nixon followed in the late, late 60s. And basically what Atwater said is, by the late 60s, you couldn't use derogatory terms toward African-Americans, so you, they used code words like states' rights <clears throat> and um, and uh, I think even he mentioned law, law and order. Now, Lee Atwater was one of the key architects <clears throat> of several presidential campaigns, um, and he was essentially saying that that was what was happening in the late 60s. Now, he was actually defending Reagan in 81, saying that was not Reagan's approach. So some of that happened. I would say you have to take people in the totality of their acts. And I don't think if you took Ronald Reagan in the totality of his acts as president or before president, that he was anything close to being racist. And indeed, <clears throat> his, his greatest speeches, and I think some of his most powerful speeches, were, were, were the antithesis of, of that. I think he used in many ways the antithesis of Ronald Reagan. And I think that if, to, to put Reagan in the same category of Donald Trump, is, is, it requires a tremendous blindness. Um, but yeah, did those elements exist? As, as I wrote in that piece, they, they did. Were they played to? Uh, some. Uh, how much? I don't know. I'm certainly willing to, to look back at it with a, with, a, with a more skeptical eye. I have argued and continue to argue that Trump didn't appear ex nihilo. It wasn't as if he came out of nowhere. He appealed to something that predated Donald Trump. There was a moment for him to, to come into this. Remember, what was it that uh, was essentially Donald Trump's entry into international politics? It was 2011, and it was the racist birther conspiracy. I wrote about this in the New York Times in 2011. I refer to it as the GOP and the birther trap. And I sort of tried to warn saying, this is not what you should be, you shouldn't be playing footsie with stuff like this. But they did. And there was obviously a strong enough element within the Republican Party that even in a field of 16 very impressive candidates uh, and, and really kind of any, any flavor of ice cream you wanted. If you were a libertarian, there was Rand Paul. If you were a certain kind of conservative, there was Ted Cruz. Uh, or if you were a different kind of conservative, there was Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush or John Kasich. Then you could get Rick Santorum, Mike Huckabee. Now, all of these people had been lifelong Republicans dedicated to the conservative cause in one way or another. Donald Trump was not. Indeed, he was, a, he was an opponent of many of those things. So the question that people have to ask themselves, I think the hard question for Republicans is, what was it about Donald Trump that caused so many Republican voters to jettison lifelong beliefs and convictions to embrace him and to nominate him. And I'm afraid the answer is that it was his style, which, which appealed to the dark and ugly parts of, of American society. Uh, and, and there was, there was uh, racist elements to it and there, were, um, <clears throat> there was some you know, bigotry to it. Um, and it, and it, it got traction. So I think that that's something Republicans, honest Republicans have to wrestle with. 
Professor Hopkins, reaction? Yeah, I, I think this is, uh, you know, this is a really fascinating um, area that we're still trying to get to the bottom of is, is, you know, to what extent is, you know, do we see the antecedents to Trump in the Republican Party and the conservative movement? What are they? Um, and one of the things that I would say is that, you know, conservatism has, has always had sort of different flavors to it in part there's been a distinction between sort of, you know, intellectual conservatism and philosophical conservatism, and then kind of the, the mass conservatism, the conservatism of the, of the, of the average person. And um, prior to Trump, you would see on the one hand, Republican politicians, Republican national leaders and, and uh, 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 candidates sort of speak in one language. And then you would see talk show hosts and, um, you, you know, talking heads on television and, and people in, uh, in various corners of the internet sort of talk in a different language. And what has happened with Trump is sort of that the, the media popular kind of version of conservatism has sort of crashed the party of the conservative, traditional conservative leadership. And now, and it's not just Trump, you see other Republican candidates now who are sort of Trumpian candidates. And this really started, you know, 10 years ago, um, you know, and it, it predated Trump in the party that, you know, after the election of Obama, you really started to see this change where um, new generations of candidates and voters who are sort of raised on popular conservative media as their primary source of what it means to be conservative are starting to support candidates and put candidates in power who speak that kind of language. Um, and one of, one of the many differences, I think, is that um, it is, uh, is, you know, a race, race and, and ethnicity, and especially with, you know, in the sort of opposition to Obama, a much more forthright appeal to ethno-nationalist sentiment than previous elite Republicans were, uh, were, 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 were likely to, to, to voice. Uh, Peter Weiner, one of the reasons that I appreciate uh, your generosity with your time is you are a thinker and um, you've written three books. I think I have that right. At least three books, I should say. One was with Michael Gerson called The City of Man. Uh, the book I've already mentioned with Arthur Brooks, Wealth and Justice. And then uh, more recently, The Death of Politics, uh, which I recommend highly. Um, and I want to come to another uh, question about um, that relates to this, that you as a thinker. Um, and it's kind of a, the changing purpose of thought within the Republican and conservative movement. There used to be a time when you would have a William Buckley or other prominent conservatives who were on, you know, you know, conservative and liberal television stations. They, they wrote for a mass audience and thought for them was, as you've been describing it, um, and um, an exploration and a pursuit of truth within a certain set of values. But now we're seeing thought being used less for understanding and more for either signaling a belonging or for attacking, uh, often through uh, the kind of right media organizations. Are you worried not just about the loss of truth, but the more fundamental issue about how thought and kind of intellectual debate has changed among conservatives? Yeah, I am. I, I, I am. You know, when, when, when I um, 
was uh, in, in my 20s in the, in the 1980s. Um, you, what, think about what were the books. I mentioned Alan Bloom's Closing the American Mind. There was Charles Murray's book, Losing Ground, which, which was an important book as, in terms of how to think about welfare. There was Richard John Newhouse, The Naked Public Square, which was uh, an elegant explication of the role of religion in public life. There was James Q. Wilson, uh, uh, one of the best social scientists of the 20th century. He wrote a book on crime and human nature. There was Antonin Scalia, who articulated textualism in judicial philosophy. So when when I was young, growing up, <clears throat> the you know ideas were cool. That's really what people cared about. And there was a kind of confidence and even pride, I would say, in the conservative movement, which was our arguments were, we thought, better. There was a, lot, there was a rigor to it. You had people like Irving Kristol and just many others. Today, it's different. There are still some very important conservative thinkers. There's no question. I think what's happened is that um, these uh, more anti-intellectual voices have risen and gained prominence, and I think probably through social media gained 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 more uh, more ground. But I do think that there has been a devaluation of ideas and intellectual seriousness. Again, I don't I don't lay this all at the feet of the Trump uh, era uh, at all. You had it with Sarah Palin uh, in in two thousand and eight. I think she was a very significant figure in a sense. She was a foreshadowing of what happened. Oliver North, if you go back to the 1980s in the Ronald Reagan administration, um, he played to a kind of, of uh, uh, you know, anti-institution, anti-authority, sort of flouted the fact that he had, he had uh, transgressed the Boland Amendment to get funds to the Contras. Um, and Newt Gingrich, though a professor and not an unintelligent person, um, has you know weaponized politics in a way that I think was extremely pernicious and 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 important in the Republican Party more than I thought so at the uh, at the time. So uh, you know these elements have been there, and, and anti-intellectualism is not new to the American right or conservatism. It's existed. The left has its version of it, but uh, again, I think part of it is the containment of it, the dominance of it. And up until Reagan, there were figures in the Republican Party, the so-called Republican establishment, that kept those elements checked. But they grew uh, in in strength and and uh, and and power. And now I I would say there's both anti-intellectualism and populism that defines the American right, which again I think is is uh, contrary to conservatism, at least as I understand it. Professor Hopkins, um, I'm curious if you would describe the era of the 1980s, the culmination of the Barry Goldwater um, uh, uh, cycle um, out of kind of the wilderness into power um, as one in which you saw intellectual uh, uh, optimism, intellectual uh, uh, efforts to really dominate policy discussions, uh, whether there was a kind of a, a confidence among conservatives that they spoke for America. This was the time we talked about the center right in America. There just was, there seemed to be in the Reagan era, a confidence and intellectual ambition that is, is lacking or diminished today. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, 
you know, the, the Reagan era was a time when, when a lot of conservatives believed, and even people who weren't conservatives believed, that conservatism's time had come in America. Um, and that, you know, the, the, the previous few decades had sort of shown the limitations of, of the liberalism of the, either the economic liberalism of the New Deal era, the cultural li liberalism of the 1960s and 70s, and that the future belonged to the right. And Reagan winning these landslide elections and being as popular a figure as he was, um, was just confirmation of that. And you saw that confidence, I think, even into the 90s and even into the George W. Bush years, the sort of belief that, um, as people often say, the country is center-right, meaning the natural majority in the country is, uh, is, is conservative. Uh, and uh, over time, this will kind of solidify. Americans will kind of see the error of their previous liberal ways, and, and conservatives will build a kind of enduring new um, not only electoral success for the Republican Party, but a sort of a, an a ideological governing success for right of center policy. Um, and that really changed, um, I think, you know, maybe to say it, it all changed in 2008 is a little too cute, a little too simple, but there certainly was a kind of a pivot point um, at the end of the second Bush administration and Obama's election, which really shook, I think, the confidence of a lot of conservatives that the future belonged to them. Uh, in America. And uh, part of it was that Obama himself, obviously he, he won and was reelected. Um, he didn't make the same concessions to conservatism and conservative policies that Bill Clinton had done in the 90s. Um, he was elected by, uh, in large part, because of a strong support among a younger generation of voters who seemed more liberal and less conservative than previous generations. And of course, he himself kind of personified change in a lot of ways, race being one of them, but not the only one. Um, and, um, you know, even, even with Trump's election to succeed Obama, we don't really see that old conservative swagger back. Um, you know, the Trump administration has a very besieged quality to it. Um, it's surrounded by enemies on all sides, you know, and, and almost, you know, literally with the, <laughs> with the barriers they're putting up in front of the White House. That sort of reflects a, a larger mentality. Um, I think that a lot of uh, people, Trump has not seemed to sort of make conservatives more popular in the country at large the way that Reagan did. Um, and so there still is this feeling of precariousness, I think, on the right that has led in some ways to, to the, the, the sort of, um, you know, the, the, the sort of negative, uh, fearful and, and angry tone uh, uh, that, that a lot of this administration has had. And, and really, you know, I mean, again, quite literally treating parts of this country like their enemy territory, um, not feeling like Reagan did that you could speak for the country or could speak for almost all of the country except maybe a few outposts. The sort of feeling that, you know, half the country is, is sort of somehow not even your country um, has become that, that, that sort of mentality, is, I think, in the, in the Trump era has, has become unmistakable. Professor Hopkins, uh, we've got a, a bunch of questions uh, from our friends here in the audience. I've been incorporating some. So a little shorter answers so we can get to more questions. Okay, here's a question that's been posed. And it's not a short answer question, but I'll ask for your, your help. We've been talking about conservatism. Um, and, and several of the questions uh, want us to talk about liberalism. The two are not comparable. You've written eloquently about their differences. But the question is this. Joe Biden has not 
adopted socialism. He's been very clear that he's not adopting Bernie Sanders' agenda or AOC or the others. But it's also clear that Joe Biden has moved probably further left on a whole host of issues than he's ever been as a politician from a border state. Um, and it's also clear that he has um, embraced the kind of identity politics of our day, uh, perhaps with the tolerance for disorder in urban areas. These are, I'm summarizing the questions. So the question to you is, as we look at conservatism, are there also some, some deep uh, concerns about elements within the liberal tradition that has evolved, particularly as, it, as we stare at it 2020? Sure. Um, you know, liberalism, um, as I say, has not always been, um, you know, synonymous with the Democratic Party, but the Democratic Party has become more liberal. And there is a kind of a new liberal progressive is often the, you know, the, the preferred nomenclature these days, um, movement that is especially visible. You know, I, I think it's probably been been very much overstated that it's a force in Democratic primaries and democratic electoral politics, but it's certainly very culturally uh, salient these days in, in the news media, in the entertainment industry, in social media. And, um, you know, it is changing the Democratic Party. There is more pressure on Democratic politicians to move to the left than, uh, than there used to be. And one of the things about Joe Biden is Joe Biden pretty much, he's been in office, you know, on and off for, for uh, almost 50 years. Pretty much every time, every moment in history, he's been pretty much at the center of wherever the Democratic Party is ideologically. And as the party moves, he moves. You know, he's not a guy with a lot of you know um, uh, sort of commitments that that stays. He sort of moves with with the pressure, and we've we've seen that pressure on him, and he has certainly moved. Um, and I think that's very telling about about Democratic politics as well. Mr. Weiner, will you feel some level of responsibility? If Joe Biden wins in November and he moves forward with an agenda that would put a liberal who would support Roe v. Wade on the Supreme Court, uh, move forward on a whole host of the policy issues that you've talked about in a liberal direction at a moment when the Democratic Party has moved decisively to the left. Yeah, since I plan to vote for Joe Biden, I suppose I, I, I would be responsible for that. Let, let me just say, I, I'm not going into this uh, blinded to that reality. I believe as a conservative that Joe Biden is going to pursue policies that I disagree with. Um, you know, there are a number of people who, who were at the beginning of the Trump era conservative, and they've given up their conservatism. Um, I'm not one of them. Um, so I'm, I'm not an enthusiast for Joe Biden or his agenda. He seems to me to be an admirable human being, which matters to me, but, but his policy, and I, I quite agree. By the way, just to pick up on what David said and what you asked, Larry, I think the, the, the Democratic Party has moved from liberalism to progressivism. They are different and distinct things. And indeed, I would argue that there is a kind of illiberalism that's increasingly powerful in the progressive movement. You see it in the cancel culture, the so-called woke politics. Um, but you see it, identity politics is extremely important to the Democratic Party. Um, abortion, Bill Clinton said, safe, legal, and rare. You can't say that as a Democrat anymore. Socialism is much more embraced. Uh, so the Democratic Party has moved very far to the, to, to the left. Um, so 
I will, as a writer and as a, as, a, as a public voice, be critical of Biden. I just think that in the end, and, and I understand people who disagree with me on this, I just think in the end, if you balance the good and the bad of Trump versus the good and the bad of Biden, I come out, the scales come very much uh, in the favor of Biden, not because I think his policies are better, but it, I think Trump's combination, really unique combination of uh, ignorance and incompetence, which we're seeing manifest in this year, particularly with the COVID-19 situation, um, and the, as I said earlier, the, the, the almost nihilistic assault on truth and the damage, the radiating damage to, to, the, uh, to, to, to our culture, our civic culture, and the cruelty and the, and the crudity. Um, I just think that the country will be more injured with a Trump presidency than without it. And I care more about the country. The last thing I'll say, uh, Larry, on this question is, I think that Republicans, I said this at the time, Republicans will look back at the, at the deal that they made to get Trump with, they will rue the day. Because I think he is doing generational damage, not just to the country, but to the Republican party and the conservative cause. They will have gotten four years of some policy victories, some policy setbacks. But the price for that, in terms of the, how the Republican party is seen, the damage it's doing to the generations, the toxicity that it's introduced. Um, I don't think it's going to be a close call. And I think conservatives, um, if, if, in, for the cause of conservatism as well as the country, should, should vote against Donald Trump, not because they think Joe Biden is, is, is going to pursue policies that are fantastic, um, but because Donald Trump is a malicious force in American life. You've touched on a topic which is getting a lot of attention now the future of the Republican Party and precisely this issue about is the Republican Party going to move back and embrace a conservative vision and values and principles, or will it uh, be kind of uh, shaped by Donald Trump? Um, and I'd like to get both of your reactions to that. Um, Peter Weiner, um, you've just laid out an argument about the Republican Party basically doing a maybe long-term damage to its reputation uh, that will hurt its candidates moving into the future, particularly as the country becomes more diverse and uh, values um, move more in the direction of, of the Democratic Party. Would you go as far as people like uh, George Will, who say that Trump must be removed, so must his congressional enablers? <clears throat> Yeah, I'm sympathetic to what, what George says. Um, I think some of it honestly depends on facts and circumstances. Who's the individual senator that you're, that you're talking um, about? Somebody like Ben Sass, who I'm sympathetic to, um, and I think would be an important voice for the party going forward, but I've frankly been disappointed in him because I think that he went quiet, sort of voce on, on Trump when he should have spoken, <clears throat> spoken out. But I'm not prepared to say that Ben Sass should 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 be defeated. But as a general matter, my 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 view on this, Larry, is that um, I don't know what's going to happen to the Republican Party going forward. I don't know if it's going to go further in a populist, ethnic nationalist direction, or conservatism is going to make a comeback. I think it's kind of a jump ball. I think it depends on several factors. One is not just whether Trump loses, which I think is quite likely, but the, the degree to which he loses. But I also am quite open to the argument that this has to be a repudiation of the Republican Party 
to show them in, in unmistakable language that this was a terrible, terrible mistake. And it, it, and it not only cost Donald Trump a second term, but it deeply injured Republicans. That's the only language they understand. We know uh, that, that, uh, that courage is not, uh, is not a quality that we've seen in Republicans with the honorable exception of Mitt Romney. They're not gonna stand up to him because of, there's no line that, I, that Donald Trump seems to, that Donald Trump can cross that Republicans seem willing to call him out on. So the only thing that will get their attention is, is losing and not just Trump losing, but the party losing and they themselves losing. And I, the toxins have to be drained. This is my critique. I understand people disagree with it. My critique is the toxins have to be drained, not just Trump has to be removed, but Trumpism has to be defeated. And the, I would say the precondition for that happening, it's a, not a sufficient condition, but a precondition, if that's gonna happen, is that Republicans have to come out of the 2020 election absolutely convinced that this was a terrible mistake and it won't happen again and they have to reform themselves and do it quickly. Uh, Professor Hopkins, you're a student of political parties. Um, when you think about the apparatus around a political party, including uh, media, donors, party activists, would you be optimistic that the toxins could be drained and a renewed Republican party emerging after uh, potential 2020 loss? Well, I'm, I'll, I'll stay analytical and, and not say optimist or pessimist, but I will say that um, I think a key, um, a key variable for where the direction goes is what does the conservative media say? Um, and if Trump does lose and he loses badly and he takes other Republicans down with him, is, uh, does, do the conservative media go along with the idea that this shows that Trumpism was a mistake and the party should go in a new direction? Or does Trump sort of become a martyr figure and the sort of the, the doubling, the conservative media sort of doubles down um, and says Trump was a victim of, of these liberal um, opponents and we need to fight them even harder. I, you know, I, I think that's, well, I suspect that it may well be the second, but I don't know. You know I, but I do think that with the, the, the amount of power that the conservative media now has within the Republican party, how the conservative media interprets the election and what they do in the future is gonna be key to, to the entire direction of the party. Peter Weiner, we haven't talked about foreign policy. Uh, you've been pretty active in some of the debates around foreign policy. And so I wanna turn back to a moment uh, which was George Bush's second inaugural address, mm -hmm. which uh, may be one of the most moral statements we've seen from a Republican uh, president, particularly in an inaugural address. Uh, president Bush said, this is 2005, January. He said in part, it is the policy of the United States to seek and support the growth of democratic movements and institutions in every nation and culture with the ultimate goal of ending tyranny in our world. Should that be the vision of a moral uh, conservative uh, government? Or should we be pulling back from uh, foreign entanglements? No, I, I, think it, I think that's the moral goal. That, that, by the way, is not unique to George W. Bush. If you go back and read Franklin Roosevelt or John F. Kennedy or, or any of those presence that that's always been the goal which is 
look, tyranny is, 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 is immoral. It's a crushing of a human spirit uh, and it has devastating human consequences. That doesn't tell you the particulars practically and concretely, how do you un undo tyranny? Um, th th those are prudential judgments. It doesn't mean that you go to war, you know, in, in, in 15 different countries to overturn uh, uh, tyrannies. There's soft power and there's hard power. There's moral power, there's economic power. There's the, there's, there's the leverage of trade, uh, most favored nations status and, and, and all the rest. But yeah, as a moral principle or as a moral goal, should the United States be in favor of, 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 of liberty and human rights and respect for human decency and against tyranny? I would say, yeah, I would, I'd love to hear the argument against it. it does, and again, that doesn't mean that it's, that it's easy or that it's not complicated or that, you, that, that uh, the belief that that a, a political ideal can overcome ancient hatreds or deep tribalistic uh, views and, and attitudes in a country, that's extremely complicated. Um, and we can't do it all at once. We're not the only ones who can do it. You have to do it, if, if you engage in those things, you have to do it with other countries smartly and prudentially and with, with alliances. But yeah, as a general matter, as a moral statement, do you wanna get rid of tyranny as opposed to liberty? I'd say um, that's probably a pretty safe ground to be on. Here's a comment on that. I think when you leave the bubble of Washington, I think this issue about the kind of projection of American uh, morality with regards to spreading democracy is not as widely shared in the country. Oh, I think I this was one of the areas where Donald Trump shrewdly tapped into a kind of latent protectionism. I'm not saying most Americans, but there is a sense that America's doing too much. Why are we the world's policemen? And both Democratic and Republican administrations may have overreached given uh, the state of public opinion. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't disagree with that. Look, there's no question that America has turned inward and, and Donald Trump tapped into that. He, was, he, was, uh, he didn't invent it necessarily. Well, he certainly didn't invent it. And isolationist segments have, have, have existed strands within conservatism. You know, there was America first and Patrick Buchanan uh, embodied that. So there's no question that there is a kind of weariness of America's involvement in the world. And one can argue that whether that's wise or not. I'm, I'm simply saying in response to the question, is the goal of American policy to the degree that it, that it can uh, undo tyranny and advance liberty? I think that's a, that's, that's a good goal. But when you say, what does that require of us? Um, and, and how does that manifest itself? That, th those are obviously debatable issues. Professor Hopkins, you're gonna get the last question. We have about a minute. Um, question from Cheryl Bailey. What is the role of women in the Republican party today? And how does conservatism play a role in the paucity of Republican women in power? Well, I think that traditionally, um, you know, Republicans and conservatives have been a little uh, resistant at thinking about things like gender identity um, and and prioritizing the sort of demographic diversity of um, you know of of office holders and leaders. Uh, compared certainly compared to the Democrats, there are lots of Republican women out there. You know, in terms of voters, you know, there are awful lots of Republican women voters. But as you move up the ladder to candidates and elected officials, you know, it becomes a more and more male. Uh, you know, population on the right. Um, we are starting to see that change a little bit this year. The Republicans in Congress seem to be 
prioritizing, I think maybe really for the first time, the recruitment of female candidates. Now, many of them are probably not going to win, but we may see that change. But historically, it just hasn't been the same um, priority on the right that it, that it has been on the left. And of course, it's more than ever a priority on the left. Professor Hopkins, thank you very much for joining us today. Peter well, thanks Wainer. Thanks for having me, Larry. Larry, it was really yeah. fun. Peter Wainer, thank you once again. You're you are a good friend of the Humphrey School, and we appreciate you uh, being with us again. Well, it's uh, there. There aren't a lot of impressive institutions in American life right now. The Humphrey Institute <laughs> is one of them, and so thanks for that, and thanks for having me on. And it's been great, also with you, uh, David. I, I've enjoyed the conversation a lot. Very much the same, Peter. It's really a pleasure to talk. I just to want you. to take a minute and close with some thanks and a little bit of information. Um, we uh, at the Humph at the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance have been pioneering a program to train future election officials. And we have a program coming up on August 13th at noon central time on election security. If you're concerned about uh, reports of Russia, China, maybe Iran trying to infiltrate our elections, this is a terrific program. It's gonna have some of the top people in the country. Um, and then I just wanna give you a heads up. We've got an incredible lineup coming in the fall. Tom Hamburger from Washington Post is gonna be with us talk about money and politics. Mark Lopez, uh, well-known uh, research at the Pew Research Center, will be talking about Hispanic voting. Uh, we've got Al Franken, uh, who's coming out of uh, seclusion a little bit, uh, to talk with us about the 2020 elections. That will be interesting and fun. And we're delighted to have back Jennifer Lawless, who's a professor at University of Virginia, to talk about women and the elections. All of those programs, today's program, past programs, you can find them online. Um, and today's program will be up there in about a day's time. Uh, Want to thank also um, the folks who have made today's programs possible. If you're interested in supporting this and other programs of this sort, uh, please let us know. Uh, and I want to give a shout out to the people who made today's program possible. Mike Curry, who's become a uh, magical producer and lining up everybody. Thank you, Mike. And also Kate Semino, who is the captain of the ship. Thanks to all of you for joining us and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Stay well.